Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 134 of the Burn and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at Interview Valet, and her name is Tevis Trower. Tevis is founder and CEO of Balance Integration and the author of The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. She knows that building a great organization begins with cultivating true greatness from the very top. Tevis is a pioneer in optimizing corporate cultures and has been heralded as corporate mindfulness guru for the new millennium. Tevis has coached high performers and top executives for powerful organizations ranging from Disney to KKR in leveraging their most precious asset, their humanity. She's a sought-after, get-them-thinking-laughing-and-interacting speaker, and you're going to hear that throughout this interview. Tevis and I had a complete and utter blast in this discussion. Uh, she's headlined executive events with Fast Company, Harvard Business Review events, Peer 150, Bloomberg, Conscious Capitalism, and Google. And she's been featured in media outlets like Forbes, Inc., Fortune, CIO, The New York Post, Yoga Journal, and more. Now, again, there's not really anything I can add to this because uh, Tevis and I... We just hit it off. We had a great discussion. She's very high power, very interactive. And even if you don't take anything away from this next uh, almost an hour, which I highly doubt, you're going to be highly entertained, I promise. So with that, let me get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding, engaging interview with Tevis Trower. Well, hello, Tevis, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Hey there, Earl. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Oh, wow. I, yeah. So, uh, yes, you know, we've had a lot <laughs> you're of... You're like, you're shy already. I don't know what, where we go from there. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. It's because, you know, again, guests, you know, we had some conversation before we uh, hit the record button, and it's just been like this. So this is going to be an outstanding interview. I know you all are going to love it. Uh, but you know, Tevis, I got to start you off where I start everybody. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's, um, it's so funny because I hear that word burden, right? And of course that's kind of pejorative, right? It's kind of negative. Um, but, but it's such a beautiful and poetic catchphrase, but where I really go in my heart is, um, Command is leadership, right? Command is authority. 
And um, the burden is really the responsibility, right, um, of of being a leader, of having influence over others, and having the ability to influence an outcome on a situation. And kind of like you and I got on the phone or on the line here, and before we started to roll tape, we were talking right before we went live. I asked you, I said, Earl, how do I make this a win for you and for your listeners, right? How do I make you look like a rock star and them feel like this has been time well spent? Mm-hmm. And to me, that is acting on the burden of command, as you would say, because I backed up for a second and I said, okay, we're here. How do we make this be the best possible outcome imaginable? And what question could I ask Earl? A, to show him I'm on board, and B, to align with what's going to matter to him and what's going to matter to what he knows of the folks who trust him with their time, which what is the bigger thing to trust on the planet than with someone's time? So so I, I feel like that's a really good metaphor um, for what the burden of the command is, and that is really backing up and asking oneself how do I engage with whoever else is involved to bring about the best possible outcome and not do it just based on my little tiny brain, right? And my thoughts and my ideas and my assumptions and my expectations, right? But to really do it based on the wisdom inside uh, competencies and the talents and knowledge of everyone involved, because that's when, that's when you've got more than one box of tools, if you know what I mean. Yeah. No, and, and I loved that question, right? I mean, you know, listeners, when, when when she asked me that question, you know, my jaw actually dropped because, you know, I know I've had guests on here before that have, have had that mentality, but you're the first one who's asked, you know, and, and I see my job as, as a host uh, to make this a win for you. And you're the first one who's actually kind of verbalized that reciprocation of saying, Hey, I want to make this a win for you as well. And, you know, I think that is a great lesson. I'm, I'm glad we are having this conversation because, you know, that is a great piece of leadership is that, that exchange that we both care about each other enough to make it as successful as possible. And, and yeah. I love that experience. Yeah. And you just said a really gorgeous thing. And that is the C word caring right yeah. um oftentimes there's there's this assumption that oh it's just business right i've been thinking about the godfather a lot today for some <laughs> reason and what's funny is he's he's so full of it when he says that because obviously he agonizes over stuff and obviously he only lets people into his clan that he he wants in his clan etc but but even in business right it's, in fact i would say especially in business, right? Because the lizard brain comes out and it's about money. It's about economic survival, right? Blah, blah, blah. And the the question really becomes, who do I want to transact with? Right? Yeah. I don't know about you, Earl, but I'd rather buy a car, a house, even a cup of coffee from someone I feel like I resonate with than, than someone who makes me want to, you know, run out of the room and go take a shower because they just feel so slimy, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I love what you just said there, that quote, because, uh, you know, it, it reminded me, uh, my wife and I, one of our favorite movies is uh, You've Got Mail. And there's this great Aww. scene. Oh, y'all are softies. That's yeah, so cute. Well, 
Yeah, that, she's my YGM. kryptonite. What can I say? <laughs> but but what I love about that is is there's a scene in there where uh, Tom Hanks says that line to to Meg Ryan. You know, it's not uh, not personal; it's just business. And her response is, "What does that even mean? Whatever anything yeah. is, it should begin as personal." Yeah. And, and and I love that because it should, right? I mean, any good business. Is about building that personal relationship and that 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 personal transaction, like what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Well, right when I started my company, I started my company when I was um, a fresh babe of the age thirty-one. I had no idea what I was doing. Forget having an MBA. I had one, but they don't teach you how to start a business, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, uh, and um, I started this business, and I put together my first uh, <laughs> pitch deck. And um, I pick out quotes, and of course, I prioritize the white dudes, right, who make a lot of money, because I figured that would prove, right, with something as touchy-feely is what I was doing at the time, right, which was trying to teach people how to um, be calm and keep their heads clear while they're navigating the business world, right? I thought, well, I better find a bunch of rich white men (laughs) 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 who talk about these kinds of values, right? Who talk about creativity, collaboration, keeping your head clear, you know, being, being authentic, being transparent. And one of them, I believe I got to dig out the deck or someone here is going to Google this and that's going to crack me up. But, um, but, one of them had a quote I really, really, really loved. And um, it was something about that that the business is nothing more than two guys comparing notes and moving forward, right? And I, I, I just, I think that's really a lovely thing because that's really the spirit of uh, collaboration and of shared ingenuity that we can spark off of each other, right? That we can build on each other's ideas. And I think that, um, that, that, that's, that's a foundation of anything great. I mean, you look at a great, a great rock band, right? You look at a basketball team, right? You look at anything and it's always that kind of, huh, you're good at that. I'm going to, you know, how do we do this? Um, but I think a lot of times in, in the course of going to work every day, we forget that and it becomes the me show somehow, <laughs> somehow yeah. in our heads. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love what you just said there. Cause it's, uh, I, you know, I probably watch way too much TV as it is, but, uh, the history channel's got this great show. They've got this series called the, uh, and they've got a bunch of different versions of it, but it's something that built America. The men who built America, the women who built America, the food. But they got one going now called The Machines, right? Mm-hmm. And they just did one on on motorcycles and the big competition between Indian motorcycles and Harley Davidson. But kind of what you just said there, like it, it, that show did a really good job of highlighting that at the end because, you know, Indian kind of started and set the standard and, and essentially invented the American motorcycle. But here comes the uh, Harley and Davidson. Yeah. And they're inspired by that. And eventually they end up putting the Indian motorcycles out of business. Yeah. But they kind of talk about some of that camaraderie between the two. Yeah. Mainly, uh, I think it was mainly Davidson and uh, and the gentleman name just popped out of my head. But they make this great point at the end that I think a lot of people are going to miss, sadly. 
is that those two guys remained friends even after Harley put Indian out of business. Yeah. Like, they would go visit each other and, and ride motorcycles across the countryside together. Oh, I hear that from the world of surfboards. I hear it from the world of bicycles, guitars. I mean, you name it, right? Yeah. When someone loves excellence in something and he or she finds a peer right, that they can share that passion. I mean, it's kind of transcends how the business plays out in, in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Well, it's that whole thing where your competition doesn't always mean that that's your enemy, right? I mean, it's it's the thing that drives you to, to reach that next level of excellence. Well, there's this great, um, this great phrase and actually um, comes from, from some country in Africa. It's called Ubuntu, and it means I am because we are. Mm. Right? Which kind of says that, like, like in this conversation, um, you're making me look smarter, and hopefully I'm making you look smarter, and, and, and that's because of the we. Right? right? If it was just me here sitting talking alone to my microphone, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd probably start reading the phone book, and people would <laughs> Would be like, oh my god, I'm gonna play her to go to bed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, I think anybody who has ever thought about starting a podcast has actually had that moment. You know, <laughs> you, you, you just turn on some, you know, like I know that was mine and a bunch of folks I talked to. You know, like, hey, I'm gonna start a podcast, and then you turn on the podcast, and it's like, or turn on the microphone, and it's like, what am I gonna say? I know. Well, I had a podcast for a while, Earl. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. I hung it up because it's so funny. Like, I know that people love your show because it's just really two people having a real conversation. And I think um, there is such an art to accomplishing that, not only um, in your ability to have a conversation with others, but also in being able to screen people, because I found that, that I'd have these genius conversations before it was roll tape time. And the minute we went and I'd be like, okay, I don't want that damn elevator pitch. I don't want your personal brand. You know, I don't want any of that. It's okay. Okay. And we would go to roll tape and all the fake would come out. Right. All the masks, all the, Oh, I'm so perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the catchphrases, all the slogans, all the buttoned up. Oh, oh and, my and God. Business bingo, right? Oh. Do you remember those cards? Yeah. yeah, no. And I tell you, I got to give a lot of credit here. And he was my first guest on the show when I started this podcast. A uh, gentleman by the name of Dov Barron. And I remember chatting with him one day. And we were talking like this. And, uh, but I was, I was doing what you were talking about, you know, cause I was new to this. I was in awe, you know, this is a guy who goes around the world speaking, doing all this great stuff, commanding huge fees. He's the guy I want to be. Right. Yeah. And towards the end of it, he goes, are you sure you were in the Marines? I go, well, <laughs> yes, sir. Why? He goes, we've been talking for an hour and you've not said one curse word. Ah. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I'm trying to be professional. Here Did you goes. just throw, throw, throw an f bomb right there? Just <laughs> basically, <laughs> right? Basic, right? He's like, he's like, he's like, yeah, but you're actually he he beat me too. He goes, you're too fucking buttoned down. Lose the edge. That's going to be your key to brilliance. Oh wow! I was like, okay, That's so funny. 
Yeah. Well, true confession, Earl, I was in the U.S. Army Reserves while I was attending the University of Tennessee, and I used to cuss like a sh- soldier, but I gave it up like five years, or I think like eight years ago now, but, but every now and then I'll slip. So. Yeah, no. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you for yours. I mean, I was just a weekend lawyer, and um, oh my God, learned so... You want to talk about leadership. I learned more about leadership in those weeks in boot camp at Fort Knox. Oh my God, I yeah. learned so much. What's your, what do you think the burden of leadership is? Speaking of, Mr. Oh yeah, well thank you for flipping that back around on me. I've only had one or two folks do that. And I, I appreciate that. You know, for me, and I've shared this on here a couple of times in different formats, but for me, I think it was summed up very well by a salty gunnery sergeant that I had as soon as I got into fleet. And he told me, he said, the secret to Marine Corps leadership is this. You have to be willing to send your team into battle knowing that they could die, but you have to love them so much that the idea of doing it rips your heart out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I get that that's kind of the Marine concept. I think it's the same thing in, in the corporate world, right? You have to be willing to take those risks. You have to be willing to push your people into that danger zone of failure, but knowing that you have to care enough about them that the idea of watching them fail is almost too much to bear, but you have to do it anyways because that's how they grow and that's how your company grows. Wow. Well, you just said so much about the ability to hold complexity. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and... um we're getting approached a lot by a lot of companies who are really struggling with um, the future of work. It's such a <laughs> just. Can we get another fancy oh, <laughs> euphemism? I, I don't think we have enough fancy euphemisms yet. Can we get? Oh, one? trust me, they're coming out at the cyclic rate right now. It's it's oh, interesting. There's like a black box somewhere next to the IBM, whatever that was called, Big Blue, that yeah. just turns out fancy euphemisms. Anyway, um, we're getting approached by so many clients saying, saying we have to get our people in, um, the heads of our companies are caving and they're cutting side deals because they don't want people to quit. They don't understand that if we don't get people back to the office, there's no glue, there's no culture, right? And it's just that ability to hold both. This is what we have to do and to feel such compassion for, um, for how hard it is for people. Um, and how do you hold both and still ask them to do it? And I think that your your uh, your gunny sergeant, I think you said it was right. Yeah, I think he put it really well, and I think that's true for all of us, right? We should take um, our people choices super seriously. Um, it's so funny too, because like a lot of times, I feel like um, uh, the C suite a lot of times would be like, oh, well, let's just hire a really good CHRO or chief people officer. Um, chief cultural officer, chief expand, a lot of euphemisms. There you go, right? Yeah. Um, and they'll make all these people decisions go away. <laughs> they'll make all these people problems go away. And because um, it's so much easier to focus on the numbers, right? It's so much yeah. easier to look at market share. It's so much easier to say, what's my cost of goods sold, right? It's so much easier <laughs> to do all yeah. that or to hear the kind of things that we're talking about and nod your head. 
right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and not think that that hey, buddy, this means maybe you got to got some work to do, right? On how you think and how you prioritize and how you take action, etc. And um, but I think that um, I think that really now is such a time of reckoning in terms of what it means to be a leader because there is no hiding. Um, and the fluidity of the talent market, um, is not just about, um, some kind of unemployment subsidy. It's a lot more profound than that. Um, and, uh, I think that this is a moment that we're, we're really going to start to see people who can pick up the burden of command, um, and people who just want to be managers. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said there again, because you, you, you said a lot with everything there. It's, you know, working with organizations right now who are experiencing this whole, you know, work shortage or worker shortage, I should say. You know, I keep pointing out and, and you know, folks can talk about their private uh, donations all, all you want. And that's fine. We can we can have that discussion at a later time. But there's one company that hasn't been hit with a worker shortage especially in the fast food industry and that's chick-fil-a and i think that's because of what you're talking about here right yeah is you know mcdonald's uh you know i live outside of indianapolis now and and they're they're talking about how mcdonald's can't keep in burger king taco bell all these places they're having trouble right across the street is the chick-fil-a and they're fully staffed and they've got a line you know wrapped around the building two or three times and they're getting people through at the same pace that they did yeah. And, and it's it's kind of what you said there, right, is is one of the reasons people are having a hard time going back to those jobs. It's not that people don't necessarily want to work. They don't want to work for that company. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want to have that daily experience. It's um it's funny because I um I've seen the founder of Chick-fil-A speak and I've got a couple of nieces and nephews who actually work in management um, for Chick-fil-A in the Silver Spring, kind of the Maryland, the Baltimore mm-hmm. um, uh, um, area. And the the loyalty um, that they feel, right? The engagement, the loyalty, the sense of opportunity, the sense of um, stakeholdership. Um, no matter what you feel about their politics, that LGBTQ, I'm just speaking about culturally, right. um, they have managed to make the people who do want to work there and who do feel comfortable with their politics, um, feel really like a part of a team. Yeah. A part of makes- something bigger. Yeah. It's really awesome. It's, it's chicken sandwiches for God's sake. <laughs> Right. It's and it it makes such a difference. So again, using local story here, there was a lady. Uh, you know, whenever I was going in to to work early morning, uh, Chick Fil A wasn't open yet, and so I would stop at McDonald's. And there was this lady. She was always you know fairly professional, but you could just see all over her face she hated life. Um, fast forward a couple months later, and I'm going through the Chick Fil A drive through, and there she is happy as can be wow just as cheerful and i mean it was a 180 degree turn i mean she was still professional but she wasn't she wasn't mad at the world anymore yeah you should bring her on your show yeah i should actually <laughs> i should that's a good idea you're full of good seriously, ideas seriously i love talking to to folks that 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 we never get the backstory yeah. right because 
she may have some management insights, some leadership insights that 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 uh, might surprise us all. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Speaking of good points here, what? before we get too much further down the road, <laughs> I, I mentioned this in the pre uh, in the in the bio. Uh, but I got to take a second here because uh, I do want to pub your book, The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. And, and yeah. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is contained within those pages, right? I definitely hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically what, what, um, what gave birth to the book was um, I was doing work for a lot of big companies. And a lot of times they would say, how do we keep our high performers, right? The folks that were grooming for the C-suite, um, they might be a year or two out, maybe three years out. How do we keep them from burning out, right? And whether you look at the legal profession, right? And I don't know how much you've watched that, right? But they have a system there called lockstep. And basically, you start at your first year, you're at this amount of money, and that amount of responsibility. And they basically groom you so that within six or seven years, you're you're either going to become a partner or not. Right. right. Which is a big thing. It's a lot of money. It's a big leap in responsibility. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So one thing a lot of companies see is that their highest performers, the people they have invested the most in, that they have the highest hopes of sticking around and taking the reins of power and driving into that beautiful sunset right or that beautiful sunrise right sunset means it's over sunrise means it's still <laughs> still coming on anyway i'm tracking um so um so one thing that, that that folks see is that a lot of times it's exactly the highest performers right the people who have the ability to take up the burden of command who've who've got the ability to do it um, with a sense of humanity, creativity, like real ability to inspire. A lot of times they'll bail right at the moment when they would have been handed power. And so, um, so I ended up coaching a couple thousand of these folks over the years. And one thing I found is um, that when you sit down with high performers and you probably can identify with this too, because you were a Marine and no one joins the Marine Corps because they want to be second rate, right? right. Um, but one thing that I found is that if we are oriented to be a high performer, a lot of times we're looking to play the game, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to win because we want to know that we have won. And so we look at it at the world and we go, which game am I going to play? I'm going to play the corporate tech game. Well, I'm going to play the, the consumer goods game. Well, I'm going to play, you, you know, and we pick our game. And we go along and we're playing and we're playing. And we forget who we are in the process. And when we start to get discontent enough that it starts to really bother us. And we're like, damn, I'm checking these boxes. I got the house. I got the spouse. I got the toys. I got, I, I got the title. I got the money. And, uh. Yep. Right. Like, and maybe they get a porn problem or booze or they get another boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it. Right? right. And, um, so, so my passion really became my conviction, um, 
to upend the assumption that it's either having that lifestyle or being true to yourself. And I'm, I just don't buy that. I think that's a bunch of malarkey. I know plenty of people and we see them all over the place. The Elon Musk's of the world, the Branson's of the world. We see people all around us who are so freaking true to themselves. It's irritating, right? <laughs> yeah. But they're kicking butt. They're making a difference in the world because they have all of their creativity available to them because they haven't been shutting it up their whole lives, right? Yeah. And so I wrote the book basically because I realized a lot of times the shifts specifically for high performers, because we are so oriented to win, right? The shifts can be so small that allow you to stay in the game, but start playing it on your own terms. So that you shift from, I'm going to check all the boxes that the world tells me is success. And I'm going to ask myself, what has to exist in my picture of success? Me being true to me, what has to be present? For me to say, okay, yeah, that's been a life worth living. And so I call that radical success because you're not taking someone else's checklist. You're kind of backing up and kind of like I did with you before we got on this, um, this episode, this conversation. I said, well, what's going to make this a win? And so why don't we do that for our lives? What's going to make this life a win for me? Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, that's so much wisdom right there because, you know, I think that's, uh, that is probably the number one reason people burn out is they're chasing something that really doesn't mean anything to them, but it means something to somebody else. Yeah. And, and that's their measurement of success. You know, we, yeah. the, the whole keeping up with the Joneses piece, right? Yep. Uh, and, and I love that because, you know, some of the happiest people I've, I've met in my life growing up in the, uh, in the mountains of Northeast Tennessee, you know, as they say, as they say, uh, they ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. But there is. <laughs> I have not heard that in a long time. And <laughs> listeners, you can probably hear I've done some time in Tennessee myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I loved. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> Go Vols, right? Go Vols. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Is is most people look at them and be like, oh, well, why don't they try harder? Why don't they do better? Why they're happy. They're content. They love their life. What better can yeah. they do? Well, there's that there's that story, right, about um, the rich guy who, like, goes down, I guess, to Mexico or wherever. He goes somewhere tropical, right, and he's on a vacation, and, um, and he gets a fisherman to take him out, and, uh, and they go out, and the rich guy sees that, that the fish are amazing. Right, and that the fisherman knows exactly where to find the fish and stuff. He's like, "Hey, you should hire some people. You can really make a lot of money doing this." And the local guy's like, "Well, why would I do that?" And he's like, "Well, you'd hire people. You take more people out. You can make more money, and then you could build a factory, or you could, you know, blah blah." Anyway, the long and I'm butchering the story, but you guys, I know some of you know the stories. And you can Google it super easily. But basically, the rich guy's trying to talk him into creating a burden of, of, of industry, right? Yep. So that he could eventually retire and do exactly what he's doing now, 
which is hanging out and fishing. And every now and then someone will say, could you take me fishing? <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and, and look, I think that, that, um, that some of us really want to participate in society, right? Some of us yeah. really want to flex our muscles and see what we're capable of. And whether that is as an artist or whether that is as a filmmaker or whether that is as an industrialist or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, I still believe that in any of those fields of pursuit, the more that we bring the wholeness of who we are, the more successful that we're going to be because we're going to be more creative. We're going to have the crazy idea that we're not afraid to say, right? We're going to um, be able to see something coming around the corner because we're not so imbued with, with expectations and judgments about what should be happening that we're going to be able to be receptive to what is happening and not freaking out all the time. So, so I think it's, it's to me, game change is like, is getting back to your birthright and still being a high performer. Yeah. No, I love it. And, and the thing I love about that, that story that you shared there, right, is, you know, the poorly. The, <laughs> eh, it could use a little polish, but you, you, you I'm got the meat find out it. There. I'm going to find it and you're going to put it in the show link. <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing is that, that, uh, you know, a lot of people, at least, you know, when, when I hear them kind of get to there, they, they, the point you made, but, if he had done what this guy was telling him, he would have destroyed the thing he loved. Yeah. Because now it's not a special spot. Now, you know, there's there's 30 boats there and, and thousands of people know about it. Now it becomes crowded and, and corporate and overpopulated. And you destroy the thing you love when you chase yeah. when you chase it that way. Yeah. And and I think that's a mistake a lot of people make, right? Is is they they go up that corporate ladder, they they have a great job and a great location, but they want that next promotion. And next thing you know, you go from being happy living in Colorado, being able to go skiing and all that good stuff whenever you want, to sitting in a high-rise office in New York City and being miserable in a concrete jungle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you said it, I think, beautifully that you're chasing something someone else told you mattered. Yeah. Right. And um, so much of it is about identity and about ego. It's like, what's going to tell me that I finally count? What's going to tell me that I'm finally worthy, that I'm finally valid? Right. What when do I know that I matter? Yeah. Right. And I think that 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 when your point of reference on that is extrinsic, you are always going to be um, almost drowning you know slapping at the waves is what i'd like to call it but when your point of reference on that is intrinsic right and you've cultivated a strong enough sense of self and self-worth um then then suddenly everything starts to change and you start to navigate choices with a lot of freedom and and that is that is usually the the key to to finding true happiness right there is being able to make those choices with that level of freedom yeah Yeah. freedom and sovereignty i've been using the word um sovereignty um and agency right this this sense of can i make a choice because it feels right to me 
right? And I don't mean that kind of narcissistic, oh, screw everybody kind of thing. I mean it more that, that, um, that we're listening to an internal voice of authority that is ethical and that is all these other things, you know, compassionate and, 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 uh, multi-stakeholder oriented and all that stuff. But, but that ultimately, um, the rightness of the feeling is, it's almost a felt sense. It's almost like you'd be lying to make any other choice than yeah. the choice that you're making. But many of us do make choices that are lies. Let's face it. Oh, yeah. Right? We're we human. Do. Yeah. It's part of the journey. It's all part of the journey, Earl. It is. No, and I think the biggest reason is, is most people, and, you know, depending on, on what we're talking about, I've, I consider myself in that category, too. There's some yeah. questions you're going to be able to ask me that I haven't taken the time to sit back and get to know myself and get to know what that answer is. And you ask me, I'm going to give you a stock answer, right? I think, I think Malcolm Gladwell said it perfectly in one of his TED Talks. He was talking about uh, how people, essentially how people make decisions, right? And he said, for instance, if you give, if you poll 100 people, what they like in a coffee, the overwhelming response is going to be a rich, dark, hearty roast. You turn around and you give those same 100 people a cup of coffee that is a rich, dark, hearty roast. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to add milk and sugar to it. (laughs) What they really want is a milky, sugary coffee drink, but they've been trained to respond. I want a rich, dark, hearty roast. So whenever they're asked that question, that's the response they give. Yeah. And, and it's so easy, you know, with marketing and everything being at our fingertips to get. We're so conditioned. Yeah. We're so conditioned. So how, how do we break that conditioning? What do we do? How do we get in touch with our true selves? Oh, my God. Well, um, so the reason I wrote the book the way I did is not only are we conditioned, but we seek more conditioning. We think, well, the conditioning I have hasn't worked out. So I better get some top 10 tips. I better go to some experts and they'll tell me the conditioning I need, right? So whether it's I need to manifest or I need to think positive, right? you, you know, all these other yeah. things. And um, what I realize is that we need to be asking ourselves really powerful, open-ended questions. And so um, I wrote this book around 10 questions and um the first one is, am I living or just existing? Mm, I like that. And you ask yourself a question like that and you cannot look, maybe somebody somewhere could BS themselves for like a minute or two, <laughs> but, but something's going to go inside of you. You're a big fat liar. Just do it. Sit with this. Right. It's yeah. going to say to you, God, what, what does that even mean? But in not having a pat answer, right, and not having a way to just shut up that question, um, even if you looked at it, you know, scientifically, well, I'm living because I have a heartbeat and I have breath. Believe me, I have friends who think that way. And that's what they would say. And I would say, well, so is that existing or is that living, right? What does life do? Life flourishes, 
life life expands it comes into expression like that's the nature of life right um so so the reason i built the book that way um and i gotta hand it to you Earl. so many hosts ask me well, give us some tips right and i'm like well <laughs> it's not so much about tips it's about learning to pay attention to yourself beyond all your conditioning so that you start to actually be able to listen to your own truth and not the conditioned truth that you've bought into because all of us have it starts around the age of two um so there's no shame in it by the way um this is all this is a huge 12-step uh community and it's called the human race (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're all, we all have a problem, right? <laughs> we got to give it up to God, right? And um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, um, but these questions are really structured in such a way that you get to ask them unto yourself and you use the world as your laboratory, right? So you ask yourself this question and then you walk around and you start to notice, wow, how do other people deal with that question and you start to notice the self of deception you start to notice um the victim thinking you start to notice all the ways that we abnegate how powerful we are how free we actually are yeah and and, um and it's a really it's a huge beautiful and you don't have to blow up your job leave your spouse or um, burn through your kid's college savings, right? You don't have to do any of that to start to feel more alive and be true to yourself. And, and I will stand by that um, because I think that, 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 that being true to ourselves and feeling fully alive, especially as leaders, high performers, uh, folks who know how to get it done, um, the shifts are really simple but really profound. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I love it, right? Because, again, talking about conditioning, like, you know, folk, most folks think that to find themselves, they've got to go on some soul-searching journey to Tibet or something like that. Oh, no. God. I've done all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you ever see that 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 cartoon of the hiker? And he's, he's hiking around, and he's looking for himself up a cliff, and he gets there, and he sees himself... <laughs> In a suit with a with a briefcase. <laughs> no, I didn't see that one. I have to look. It's that. very funny. I'll try and find that one too. I've got some homework coming out of this. <laughs> um, but uh, no, no, I've done all that, and I think that um, I think the perspective shifting experiences are huge. And whether yeah. you want to go to Tibet and hang out, or hike, or do a service project, like I think it is a great thing to take ourselves out of our comfort zone, right? I think it's a beautiful thing. I think what is really powerful is when you take yourself into awakeness while you're in your comfort zone, right? right? Because then you're shifting in context, right? Then you're shifting in the same context that you have dumbed yourself down in for decades. And that's when you really start to apply a lot of the awarenesses that you might get if you went to Tibet or Peru and did some plant toxins that make you hallucinate. Right? 
<laughs> oh yeah, I've seen some stuff on that. That that seems like a very interesting way to get in touch with. Oh, it's all the rage. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but I think this is, you know, I mean, this is great. This is a great conversation we've we've had so far, and I really appreciate you being here and having it with me and, and bringing our listeners along because, uh, you know, I don't know how they can have sat here for the last 40 minutes or so and, and not just been entertained. This is uh, this has been one of my favorite interviews so far, and I really I really love it. And um, But I would be remiss because my good friends Tom and Karen Schwab over Interview Valet do such a great job of preparing me for guests that they they send my way and every once in a while one of the interview topic questions that they they send along just really sticks out to me now okay. full disclosure i think my fans have probably uh heard me talk about it, some of this stuff here before but i'm a big marvel universe fan oh I so love you probably know where questions. i'm going with this i do the way they put it in interview topics is superheroes suck at leadership. Why the guy on the ground matters more. So, so why is Captain America? Uh, why does Captain America suck at leadership? Because look, um, what happens when there's a problem in the town and they have to pull out the Batman light for Batman to come and save everybody? Oh. Like everyone's paralyzed until Batman shows up. Yep. Right. And when you triangulate that into a team. Right. If if everyone has assumed a level of helplessness or disempowerment and one person is assumed to have superpowers. Right. Then then why bother having a team? Yep. And the, uh, the other thing I think is really amazing is that um, a lot of us coming up. Right. I'm an Xer. Um, I say that with pride because I did have a latchkey. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same here. <laughs> uh, and we had better music. I'm just going to put it straight up. Right? Absolutely. That's why everybody's um, getting back into it today, right? I know. I know. I I do want to say some good things about the millennials, though, but oh, but yeah. we'll get back to that. But um, but the a lot of us were raised with a lot of old-fashioned ideas about what a leader is and we were raised to think that if we were the person if we wanted to be a leader and to be a compelling leader then we have to pretend to have it all figured out and have all the answers and to be a superhero and so so i've seen even amongst my contemporaries a lot of really outdated uh, patriarchal command and control stuff that doesn't even happen in the military these days yes. where, Oh, you can't share that information. Oh, you can't let them weigh in on that choice. Oh, you can't, you can't let them know the pricing model. And it's like, well, really? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I think that superheroes suck at leadership. I think they are great. Um, as icons to watch on a screen to remind us of how amazing we each are. But I think all of us need to feel like we are superheroes rather than thinking there's only one in each town or one in each team or one in each company. Um, I think that's a recipe both for burnout by the superhero. I think it's a recipe for um, really a fallout of any facsimile of trust or empowerment or discretionary effort by anyone else i just think it's a recipe for disaster 
Yeah, no, I love it. And, and I agree with you completely. You know, I, that's one of the things I do have to give, you know, say Marvel and DC some credit for in, in more modern times dabbling with is because I think this is where companies get themselves into into real trouble when they have that superhero is what happens when, you know, what happens oh, yeah. when th- that superhero leaves, like you said, or worse, what happens when that superhero realizes that they're a superhero and they start thinking that they're indispensable. Oh, yeah. It's a monster. And look, it doesn't have to be like I've seen this um, on huge scales. Like um, we were working with Morgan Stanley during the meltdown, right, in 2008. And there was one guy who had written all their code, like literally had written all their code. And it was the Global Wealth Management Group. And this guy was um, not super, shall we say, socially skilled um, and was kind of toxic to the entire group, but they couldn't let him go, right? They could not. I saw it in another client, um, a guy who had had really designed most of their R&D function um, was the same kind of uh, personality. And... Um, so it brings a company to its knees. I've seen it in smaller type organizations. Like, um, I worked at Equinox years ago. I was a yoga teacher, um, while I was corporate, right? I just kind of did it on the side because I loved it. And, um, I saw how if an instructor was given a lot of power, how they would jerk around the organization, right? And it, so, so you are not served by that anywhere. Look, the only time it's great to have a diva is when they're right in front of the mic. If they're not right in front of the mic, then everybody's got to be willing to push them up as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I again, I, I love that. And there's been, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think that, that there should be a lot more. Okay. I've never went through an MBA program, uh, myself, but I know Good folks for you. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think this is what you're getting at here is, is a big reason why there needs to be a lot more of, of the, the kind of social studies piece in there. Right. Because when you understand like the Milgram experiments and things like that, that were done, you understand what we're talking about here, how a little bit of power with a little bit of encouragement can build a tyrant real quick. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So no, I love that. Well, you that. know what they say: in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Yeah. And um, yeah. So. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. You know, and, and you know, there's so many. Again, there's so many kind of uh, references that that we could go with there. Like as as you were explaining that first one, the the first thing that popped in my head, and this is how my brain works, was uh, Nedry and Jurassic Park, the the first Jurassic Park where. You know, he was you, the- you're killing me. I am so culturally illiterate. I love oh. it that you know all these. I do remember you got mail. I did see Jurassic Park, but I can't remember it. Well, long story short, he was the he was the coder guy, and he he's the one that caused basically everybody to get eaten because he had all the power. Nobody could do his job. He knew it, and yeah. he was the weak point. Yeah, and I think that's the key factor here with you know kind of what you were talking about Morgan Stanley and and, and all this is. Giving one person that much power creates a huge weakness because 
you know, what happens if that individual, like in your first story there, what happens if that individual gets mad, puts some piece of code in there that makes it obsolete and walks? Okay. Yeah. And if you play this out, Earl, because I can't name names, but we worked with a major sports organization and we've worked with a number of them. So you're not going to be able to figure out who this is. So don't even try. Um, but they had, they had had a huge cultural shift and a new head and blah, blah, blah. But so many of the people that were on the C-suite, each of the C functions were superheroes and they didn't share information Mm. and um they didn't collaborate and they didn't um allow for the decisions to happen up and down the chain right so so they were both strangling vertically right they were strangling the productivity the creativity the innovation that was possible in their vertical but then when it came to cooperation across the various uh, functions of the organization, um, uh, there was no no communication happening. Yep. yep. Because, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, it happens way too often, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah and it's just fear. Let's, let's, let's be honest, right? What we were talking about is fear. You're yes. talking about fear and ego. And I am afraid that that I am not going to be valuable, right? I am afraid that you will not see that I am valuable. I am afraid I will not be taken care of unless I have a stranglehold over power, right? This is just fear. So, exactly. human. Yeah. Love it. Well, Tevis, good grief. I'm looking here at the clock here, and uh, we've been chatting away for, for 50 minutes here, and I have loved everything. Every nanosecond of it. <laughs> I got to go feed the meter. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. This, this has been great. And again, listeners, I know you've loved it. Um, I know you're going to go out and you're going to grab a copy of the Game Changers Guide to Radical Success because Woo! it's, you know, you've heard Tevis talk here. You've heard some of these questions. Uh, you know, go get your copy. Uh, but let's just say... They want to find out more about you and what you do. How can they do that? Awesome. Well, we are going to let them have um, a little distillation I put together of eight happiness habits for high performers. And we're going to make sure that you guys have a link um, to offer that up. They can find me at www.balanceintegration.com. I'm on all the platforms. Um, but I want to tell everybody because um, we are launching a mastermind at the end of September. Um, I only take 10 people. So it's, it's small. Um, nice. And the reason it's small is because I want you guys to go out there and kick ass and do it your way. And I want you to have access to me to have the support that you need to make those shifts. So, um, so that is kicking off in September. And if y'all want to know more about that, et cetera, then you can pop me an email at Tevis at balance integration, but we are going to make sure that you have access to the happiness habits. Cause, um, cause I want y'all to have that just on me. It's my gift. 
Outstanding. Well, thank you very much for that. And and listeners, those uh, links will be in the show notes. So make sure you take advantage of those and uh, reach out about that mastermind. I'm sure uh, I'm sure if you're one of the the lucky ten, it's going to be extremely valuable. So, um, well, before I let you go, I got to give you the courtesy of asking the the last question I ask all my guests. Yes. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover today that you'd like to leave listeners with? I think the one thing that's really been on my mind is, um, is everyone's conversation about uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's just been ongoing, right? I mean, pre COVID even there was a lot of uncertainty, you know? And, um, the one thing that, that I've been loving sharing with people is, um, get offline. I know I just told you to go and get my happiness habits and stuff like that, but, take a a data detox because the uncertainty is going to continue but one thing you can be certain of is your inhale and your exhale one thing you can be certain of is watching the sunset one thing you can be certain of is feeling your feet on the ground or hearing the bubbling of a stream right so so i want to encourage all of us to make more time for that kind of certainty because when we have that calm everything that we can't control becomes a lot more navigable so thank Mm. you earl no i love that that is beautiful that's that that is very well said and and i'll just double down and and agree Uh, i can't really add anything to it other than just what she said uh (laughs) so uh well, again, Tevis, thank you very much for spending, uh, you know, this almost hour with, with me and my listeners. I know I've gotten a lot out of it. I'm sure they've got a lot out of it. Uh, again, I'm going to encourage them to go grab a, uh, a copy of the book, take advantage of those links. But again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Earl. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. This has been wonderful. And listeners, thank you for being with us. Uh, you know, if you need to reach out to me, burden.command at gmail.com. Thank you for going out there and rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this show with everybody that you know. So great guests like Tevis can reach more people and have a bigger impact on the world the way that they want to. So thank you for taking that responsibility serious. I appreciate it. I know Tevis appreciates it. I know all my guests have appreciated it. With that, Thank you one last time for spending your hour with us. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for Female Empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for Geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Electric acid.